you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Russell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is playing in Sonoma this weekend at the AV Film Festival. It's playing on Saturday the 30th at 4.15 p.m., and then Sunday, May 1st at 7 p.m. And I will be at both screenings, and my producer Jeff will be at both screenings. So if you're in the Bay Area and you want to come see the movie and, like, you know, say hello and support the film, come on out. Tickets are selling out. I think there's only 100 seats in each theater, so get them while you can. I am Liz Manishaw. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, we welcome filmmaker and film festival director Melanie Addington to talk about getting into the film festival game, making the switch from the Oxford Film Festival to Tallgrass, and to hear about what an executive film festival director does in the first place and like what their, their work is like. We also have an article from The Hollywood Reporter about how towns in California are trying to sue Hulu and Netflix. Oh, those evil streamers. So they have to pay them taxes, you know, for doing business in their in their towns and how that's failing miserably, which I mean, I don't know if I care. And lastly, Liz and I answer a question. But first, a listener question even. But first, Liz, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm stressed out because time is my love language and I lost several hours this morning to my child's pediatrician being late and now I'm like, what do I do? So I guess this is like a general concern of mine because also I'm listening to podcasts about how to refocus our attention, how to get into deep focus, how not to get distracted. I'm on my social media diet, but how am I right now? I'm stressed out because I'm thinking about the next few hours. That's how I feel. (laughs) This is what's going on. How are you? You're stressed out because it's you don't have enough time to do the things that you want to do in the time or yeah, because because well, because well, I'm a control freak. So when the plan goes out of, you know, it is not how you intend it. Right. So if like someone's like two hours late or whatever, you're like, what do I do? I had this plan. Now, my plan is not going to happen the way I wanted it to happen. So I'm trying to figure out whether I prioritize lunch or hiking or getting stuff off my to do list. So I, mm. which is the worst because I'll always choose hiking, which is not good. I don't think <laughs> it's not always the best. Maybe you choice. could hike and then get lunch on the way back and then maybe get one thing off your to do list. So combine all yeah. into one. Do I a shorter hike, you know? Oh, never a shorter hike. But oh. I, <laughs> no, I think that's a really sane response. I just don't know if you feel this way. I was like, it was like two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I turned to Sean and I was like, oh, there isn't one item on my to-do list that's going to make me feel better. It's just anxiety. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you mm. you feel like you have something hanging over you all the time? And I thought if I get enough on my to-do list completed, the anxiety will go away. And I came to this crazy realization at age 37 that the anxiety does not go away if you complete enough on your to-do list, which was a, an overdue realization on my end. It's so funny. I have the same feeling as you this last week because I'm I'm helping on this movie, which I can't really talk about, but I'm I'm doing that while also doing my day job. So I'm like, you know, doing some some work for them. I think I can say what I'm doing. I'm just doing clearances. Mm-hmm. So I'm like helping them get like certain things clear to be used in the movie. And I think last week I felt this insane amount of pressure because like we only have like two and a half weeks till we start shooting. And it's like, you know, I hadn't really gotten much, you know, back from anybody. I didn't really know like what was a priority. I just had this huge list of stuff. And then, you know, I made a priority list on Monday and I and I made a bunch of priorities 
progress. And I feel like just doing a little progress and like now I've, I've at least made first contact with everybody. And I've had conversations with, with like, you know, one person down on the list on a couple of them. And it feels like, okay, like I've done my work. Like I'm just waiting to hear back. And like if with clearances, a lot of it is waiting, you know, and I don't even know what my, my clearance budget is. So I don't even like if I got to the negotiation and I'm at the negotiation stage with a couple of them. And it's like, I don't, I can't, I don't know what to negotiate because <laughs> I don't know what my budget is. So besides just being like, can I have it for free, please? Well, I don't really have any other thing to do. So it, opposite to you, the anxiety went away. No. When I did, when I did. <laughs> not supposed to <laughs> prove that. For me, for me. And then like, like, it's so stupid. Like I came up with this new idea for a movie over the weekend with, with Beth. And we like, you know, we basically, like I had like an idea. I talked it out. And then like in, on our walk, we like workshopped the whole thing and came up with the whole movie during our walk. And so like, I wrote it down. I got it all. And it's like, this is the movie I'm going to write. Like whatever I was working on before, it's like, that's going to be on the back burner. Like I still love those projects, but like, this is like, you can make it low budget. It's got the same sort of vibe and tone, tonality, I should say, I guess, as the alternate. And it's like, you know, something that was, is totally achievable. And I'm, I, I don't like, my, my head doesn't explode when I think about doing it on a low budget. It's like, okay, we can actually make this movie for under half a million dollars. Like, this is amazing. So I'm really excited about that. And like, I've been having a little anxiety about that too, because like, I I got so excited. I, I'm still so excited about it, but I haven't really put, like, I haven't started pages yet. I kind of have like, you know, I have a, like a macro outline and then I started a, a micro outline, but like, it's, it's not really very filled out. And like, I feel like, oh my God, I'm ignoring this project. Like I need to work on it before I lose interest. I have to go now, go now, now, now. And then like last night at, at like midnight, I was like trying to get a little work in before sleep. And I kept on falling asleep while I was typing. And I think I got like maybe four or five micro beats on the beat sheet done in there. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I did something. That's and good. then anxiety lifted a little bit on that project too. Man, so it's just so boy. funny how like, for, it's like for me, it's like even doing the smallest amount will make me feel better. That's like, I'm not being a shithead and ignoring something. But for you, it's like doing a whole task doesn't even like, it doesn't really, matter. It's just, it's just so funny how different we are. <laughs> it, it is. But I do think what does make me feel better is putting, just creating a to-do list every day so that it's not infinite tasks in my mind. It's just what's in front of me. And that's the only thing that I've found actually helps. And then exercising really helps because by the time I'm done exercising, this is why I prioritize the hikes. By the time I'm done exercising, I'm in a rational state of mind where I'm like, oh, wait, no one's clamoring to receive this deliverable today. You're going to be okay. Like, I don't see that until I burn out all the extra energy, unfortunately. So the anxiety hopefully will be gone in like two hours is what nice i have to say <laughs> yeah i i'm 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 also doing these hikes every day but we do them in the very start of the day so like we get up feed the baby get on the hike you know before anything else happens so like having that as a way to start the day it, it does exactly what you're saying it like clears the mind lets you see things clearly you know and i have task list list from my day job so like i have like all my tasks for that Right. Right. Currently, I don't have a task list for my creative work, you know. But you know um, but when what I'm, that is. It's like, yeah. do your pages, do your outline. But if I'm like actually working on a movie or if like if I'm making a short film or like when I was working on the alternate, I, I did have like a daily task list that I would like, you know, like check in, like write usually the day before and then check in in the morning and then, you know, keep on updating. Or when I was working on produ- in production, I'd always do that for production. Like if I had like a shoot coming in two weeks, I would have a task list every day. Like these things need to happen. 
happen or you're going to get fired. <laughs> and it feels better. <laughs> this feels better to know what's going to get you fired. Like, what are the concrete items that will get me right. fired if I don't deal? <laughs> Not getting the permit will get you fired. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> So get the fucking permit. <laughs> Talking about things that everyone needs to do. Don't forget. Oh, that's you. Fuck. I was so excited about doing the segue that I, I just steal yours. <laughs> just steal mine. Yeah. Talking about things that everyone has to do. Don't forget to support us on Patreon. Zing. www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. That's where you go to get little bonus behind the scenes content with the show. We're, we're putting our weekly meetings that we have about the show up for people to, to listen and all the ridiculousness that comes out of mostly Eric and Maya's mouth. No, not, not trying to throw shade on Eric. I just think we, we always are going these crazy tangents. And Liz oh. is usually the person to be like, let's stay focused. You're but like the this fun week- ones. What do you mean? Like, that's not even a negative thing. The, like, if you want to see funny banter, like, watch. No one wants to hear the actual concrete meeting, like, which is my side of the things. <laughs> There's a couple of times where Liz hasn't been able to make a meeting and it's just Eric and I. And I like, I, I swear to God, like, we just talk for like 30 minutes about movies. And then we're like, wait, okay, let's. There's a podcast here somewhere that we need. Okay, let's focus on the podcast. All right, what's happening? But it's really fun. It's very enjoyable. But yeah, anyways, those are up there. We also have to say happy birthday to Deborah Lee Smith. She is our newest Patreon patron. Thank you so much, Deborah. She's also an actor filmmaker who is always eager to learn from the amazing guests that we have on the podcast. She's grateful for the ongoing knowledge and insight that we give back to the community and make this filmmaking craziness seem a little less solitary. Deborah also adds, I truly appreciate what you're all doing and I always love the frankness and openness of yourselves and your guests. So Deborah, thank you so much. You, you are Deborah. a rock star. <laughs> it's amazing. We're getting so much Patreon love these days. I, it, was, it was incredible. So thank you all. <laughs> Also, we have an AMA happening, guess what, today. So if you want to join, jump over to our Patreon page and join these lovely people. There is still time, people. If you're listening to this at 7 a.m., there is still time to make the AMA today. At what time is it, Liz? 1.30. On, 1.30. On the 25th of April, Pacific time, 1.30. So if you're listening to this, you're drinking your coffee, it's like 7.30 in the morning. You know, you're one of those people who listen to the podcast first thing as soon as it drops. You've got a few hours if you're on P- Pacific time to check it out also uh, make sure to check out jambox.io a new royalty free music and sound, sound effects company with an emphasis on high quality cinematic cues they offer customized plans to fit your needs and they focus on working with composers on an exclusive basis so you won't hear these tracks popping up on any other platform also you can get a use our promo code mmih when signing up to get a 20 percent discount on your subscription and as of now, no one has subscribed using our promo code. So I, I really, I'm putting it out of the universe, you know, like, I, whatever, like, we can't control what people do, but it would be so great if at least one person used MMIH promo code to sign up for Jambox.io. So I don't feel like I'm wasting these guys' time, although they are getting free advertising or whatever, because you only get a percentage if someone signs up. Anyway, whatever. But someone should check it out. But without any more stupid commentary, here's our chat with Melanie Addington. Mel, thank you for joining us today. Can you give us the elevator pitch for your short Golden Years? Yeah, so I produced the Golden Years as part of a longstanding project where the festival I worked for before Oxford Film Festival helped brand new directors learn how to make a movie. And so we produced the film, both executive produced the tiny little bit of catering budget and then produced, got everything together for them. So it was a very fun, challenging project each year, working with all new everything. (laughs) 
So. And then how many days did you shoot? You know, we only shot two days and then some pickup shots. It was a very simple shoot, but there were a lot of rehearsal days because the director had a theater background. So he and the two actors just really got together and rehearsed a lot before. What can you speak of with regard to the budget? <laughs> well, being a festival budget, it was definitely... Actually, that project was SAG. So the actors received SAG. And in fact, we had a really cute scene that a dog accidentally ran into. And then we learned all the rules with animals are harder than actors on SAG. So we cut that. (laughs) So that was interesting. (laughs) And then these are all very minimal shorts that are shot through the lens of the film fest. And so there's a very small amount set aside to pay actors and to pay for food. But all the crew, it's considered a learning experience. And so we all actually pitch in for free. I guess technically I didn't since I was like the paid employee making sure it happened. So yeah, it's definitely not probably the best model, but you know, it's that old style of making something together with your friends. So we kind of gave them the framework and some funding to be able to go out there and they didn't have to find equipment. We brought all of that in for them. So it's really just showing up for a weekend and learning how to film. And uh, how did the idea come about or how did you guys decide that this was going to be the short to produce? So every year was different. This actually started as a collaborative project with Kodak way back in the day where we actually filmed the first one on film right in the transition. So after that, every year has been digital. So when it started, Kodak gave us funding and free film to bring in a professional crew to train new actors. And then we sort of reversed the model to, especially because in Mississippi, there were film incentives being taken away, then brought back. The main problem with the state was that all the crew moved to Atlanta and New Orleans. So we had to rebuild our crew base in the state. And so this was us trying to help strengthen that and teach people that maybe can't take a film class or whatever. This gave them a free weekend to try it out. So it really shifted gears from its original point. Interesting. How long did y'all spend working on this specific film from it being brought to you to its release into the world? Yeah, because I don't think I ever actually, we had a filmmaker, a scriptwriter actually had several films that had been made of his shorts play at the festival the year before. And he said, oh, are you ever looking for scripts? And I happened to mention we did this community film. So that was two years out. And then the year before he won or was runner up, it's been a while, <laughs> for our script competition. We did a short script competition. Oxford. And so we made it that the winner actually is the thing that gets produced the next year. So that one was easy. In the early days, it was us trying to help fledgling screenwriters or doing competitions. And it was all lots of convoluted, complicated ways to find a good idea. So I mean, so it was a year ago, a year, you said a year out, right? When you Mm -hmm. found the script. Mm -hmm. And then did you jump right into production from then on? Or what was the detail of the calendar? So the next step is to do sort of an informal call and then a formal call of who even wants to learn how to be a director. And I had actually this one specifically, our LGBTQIA programmer, Brian Wisenot, had always said he's going to make a film one day. And he's one of those that needed a little push. So I went to him directly and asked him, like, you've been saying, I've known you six years now that you're going to one day make a film. I said, what about this one? Because somebody did that to me. And that's how I got involved in filmmaking. And so he said, "Uh, if I think about it, I'll say no. So yes. (laughs) And I roped him in at a random party in the corner. (laughs) So 
this one was really easy to come together because reading it, we knew instantly our two friends, Johnny and Susan McPhail, who are professional actors and who are SAG, were the perfect couple for this. And so of all the films I've produced, it's probably accidentally the easiest other than a stage director learning what a frame is. <laughs> I think that was our biggest challenge was the cinematographer and our fledgling director working together. And then compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one to make? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I still have one that I've been working on for eight years and still hasn't been released. So that's my 11. <laughs> so maybe like a four. <laughs> <laughs> well, jumping into like our main questions, I make some of our guests do this and I hope you don't mind me putting you on the spot. But can you kind of de- like tell your own story, define yourself? Because in addition to like uh, heading film festivals, you're a producer, you're a writer, you're a journalist. I'm just trying to kind of figure you out in, in your entirety. <laughs> Great that's question. Okay. Me too. Thank you. Why don't you tell me? me <laughs> I don't know what I am. I started, I loved films. I saw Howard the Duck when I was seven. And <laughs> yes, I know. But I was like, how did they make this movie? It was just magic to me. So I kept learning. So I started as a writer. And then when I got into college, I was an English major and a film minor. And they didn't have a film critic on the school paper. So I thought I would start writing because that was an easy way to see films for free. <laughs> Which still is. So <laughs> that worked out. And But I was destined to be a teacher and that didn't happen. So I really randomly fell into news reporting while volunteering at film festivals. Totally oblivious to the idea that I could even help shape one ever. That was not in my head. I had friends that were filmmakers in high school and college. And I was like, cool, I'll watch it. <laughs> And so it was just very random what happened in my life because I have sort of three loves. I I love higher ed. In fact, I got a master's in it, which I really don't use. But I was working on campus and I was a reporter and then I was volunteering with the Film Fest. And my life kept sort of shifting back down to the stuff that really mattered. And for me, that was the film component. So really, like I worked for a pizza magazine for a while, which believe me, I still love pizza. That hasn't changed. But I really, really just loved writing films, writing about films. And then really, I tried my hand at directing and learned I'm not really a director. But I loved the idea of making films happen, knowing that you were the one that thought of that location or you found this person to work on it. And that's what made it, you know, I just love that whole idea of producing. So did that answer that? I keep wandering off. (laughs) No, it did. I mean, I want to know how Oxford and Tallgrass came into the picture, but maybe, but I also feel like I'm hogging you. So Alric, jump in and then we'll get to it after. I was just going to ask about Oxford because you were there 17 years. You were the executive director for five. Why, after being there for so long, like, why did you decide to move on to Tallgrass? Like, what was the, you know, it it seems like you were like kind of an institution at this (laughs) festival and then like suddenly you're at a new festival. So I'd love to hear about that. that Sure. It was a few things. I moved around the entire country, my entire K through 12 years. My parents were always moving. So it was wonderful. And I still love moving. I love experiencing new places. But my son, I really wanted stability for him. So once I moved to Oxford, he stayed in one K through 12 system. Well, then he graduated and I was like, well, that was my tie here. And I still love the town, but it keeps getting more and more expensive. It was really hard to live there. In fact, anyone that was a worker there, not a student funded by a parent, there was nowhere to live. It was so expensive. And so I had been to Tallgrass years ago when Leela met O'Connor, amazing mama film now. She was running it and I fell in love with it. I don't know why. It's something gritty about it. It's a little bit like Memphis, but like a little bit nicer, a little Midwestern values. 
but, but it's just so nice. And it's literally the most affordable place to live in America. Don't cut that because I don't want anyone to know that. <laughs> no, you don't have to. <laughs> and so I just interviewed really because I thought, you know, I sort of I moved to Mississippi to learn about journalism and I loved it. But then now I'm in this new career I never planned to be in. Is this a fluke just because I happen to be the only local who would do it? Or is this something I can do as a real career? So I, I interviewed just seeing if I'd even get a job interview and then didn't really think about it again because they interviewed me months before and was running the festival and literally the board of directors up here called me mid-Oxford festival. I was like, hey, I'm sorry it took so long. We had some funding. We want to make sure it worked out and offered me the job. So very random story. I know that's most of my life, though. I think you can define it by randomness. Wait, you you didn't think you were qualified after running a film festival for 17 years? I have self-esteem issues. I try. But yeah. But you know, when you're only at one job, you're like, this is the one job I know. I don't know how it translates to another. So it worked, I guess. Well, I don't know. We opened a new cinema, so I'm not failing yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> Can you talk a little bit how you got to Oxford in the first place? Like you combining all of your interests into heading a film festival? Yeah, I um, was in my undergrad at Cal State San Marcos, which is northern San Diego, which is mostly where I'm from. I was born in Los Angeles. And my teacher in my memoir writing class came back and was talking about this amazing place she just went to called Oxford. There's this great independent bookstore. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Started talking about their master's program. So I started looking into it. And honestly, I applied to NYU. And that was my big dream. I'm going to go to New York along with everyone else. And I got in. And then I got what it would cost for one year at NYU, which was all four years at the University of Mississippi. And I, you know, I wasn't getting like a specialized film degree. This is just like journalism. And they had a good journalism program. So I moved there and loved it and fell in love with the town, fell in love with the sort of artsy. It was very much a writer's haven. There were like two filmmakers when I moved there. But then the festival started and I I just really, if you ever go to Oxford, it's a very special little place. So, Wait, But you, you still haven't told us how you got to be. <laughs> Thank you for keeping me on cue. I'm terrible at that. Well, it's my curiosity that's doing it. Yeah, it was, it was all very random. I mean, I was working on campus and then I finally got a job as a reporter, which was, you know, my dream from the start, which is why I was there. So when that finally happened, it was very exciting. But then I got a job at a pizza magazine and all of a sudden, literally the entire world opened up because suddenly I was traveling all over the world, going to Italy once a year, doing all this video work and social media and all this stuff. And it just made a lot of sense when the other three volunteer co-directors at Oxford were like, we can't do this anymore. We're too busy. This, this is getting too big. I was the one that stepped in and said, I honestly love this and it still lets me write. So I'll do it. And so it was really sort of a fluke at first, but then I obviously proved myself a few times. So just for someone who doesn't really know anything, what's <laughs> the difference between a development director and executive director? Because they both have director in the title, right? Mm, but like yeah. they must be obviously made way different jobs. So can you talk about like what you did in those first 11 years before you took over as executive director? Yeah, it's less difference than you think. <laughs> the development director really is in charge of a lot of the fundraising. So developing out the sponsors and the community partners and doing a lot of that stuff. And so when I took over as executive director, I already had those relationships in place. And so it's really just building upon that, also adding some grant writing, also sort of looking at the larger puzzle of the festival and going, okay, this is all the pieces. Now, you know, programmers do your part, hospitality do your part. And so just producing really, it's all just producing. It's really the same. I'm trying to figure out which question. 
question to ask you. Well, let's talk a little bit about programming and like how films are picked to play because I'm curious, like I know programmers put forth titles that they want to go through, but are you like the ultimate decider? Are you screening alongside with them? How does the ED factor into all these decisions regarding programming? I think it really does depend festival to festival. I usually helped with opening and closing and if we had a centerpiece and then the occasional special film. My role really for the programmers was to navigate the emails because there's, you know, hundreds, especially at Oxford where we offered feedback if anyone asked, which could mean 4,000 people asking on the same day. So I was really just doing the admin stuff and then saying, hey, by the way, this is an alum. You should check it out, flagging it. But I try and same at Tallgrass. I try to stay out of the programmer's way because they have a vision. Although I definitely, I'm, I have to, I have to watch the films. I want to know what I'm telling people to come see because it's not fair for me to be like, yeah, it's going to be great. And then it's like really bad stuff that one year, you know? So I, I tend to stay as involved as I can watching most of the films. And then my programmer at Tallgrass lives in Berlin, Germany, and he comes back for the festival. He's from Wichita. And so I tend to have to represent at festivals where he would probably normally do that. And do you ever find yourself in a, in a situation where like you watch some of the films that have been selected and you're like, wait, this is not up to the quality that we have at the festival or like maybe isn't like in line with the brand maybe? And have, has that ever happened? And then what do you do in that situation? Yeah, no. So our our brand is stubbornly independent. So <laughs> I think maybe if something's too big and about to re- be released the next week on Netflix, per se, I would probably ask why we're giving a slot away to them. But in general, I everyone has a different opinion. And just because one film's not my cup of tea doesn't mean it's somebody else in our audiences. And that's my programmer's job. So I have to trust him and hope that's really going to work out. And the ticket sales show repeatedly that it did. So <laughs> I remember when the pandemic started, you wrote a piece for movie maker, filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I always get them mixed up. Oh, probably movie maker. Probably movie maker. Yeah. About the importance of regional film festivals. And can we have a little taste of that here? Can you talk a little bit about why you believe that we shall be supporting regional film festivals, which is an argument I, I want to amplify for, for what it's Yeah. Called. I, you know, I studied art history alongside film in school. And where American art really took off is when people actually bothered to leave New York or LA and see what the rest of the country was about. And regional painting exploded. Most people don't know very much about Georgia O'Keeffe's New York art, but they know a lot about our New Mexico art. As a weird side example, the same thing has happened in filmmaking. Once the equipment was there, people realized they didn't have to be in two towns. They could live anywhere and turn on a camera. And that's the same for film festivals. I mean, yes, we're still living in a model where you have to be in New York or LA to qualify, et cetera, et cetera. But I have found the most interesting films, often sometimes ignored by the bigger areas, to be the most interesting, most challenging and unique voices. I mean, I find more interesting things out of Sidewalk Film Festival than I'm going to. No offense. I like lots of things at Sundance. (laughs) There's great stuff. But I have always found that the larger regional festivals are willing to take a chance and their audiences are hungrier for more stuff. And I think that's really interesting. I have a follow up. <laughs> I'm just going to ask it. I'm starting to do a sales, but folded into that is sometimes some festival repping. And it's very interesting to watch that in a more intimate vantage point, seeing where nepotism takes hold and where it doesn't and where where it's not nepotism, where there's actually people screening the work and 
there's actual communication and back and forth between filmmaker and programmers. Can you talk a little bit about the open doors of the Regional Film Festival and the willingness to accept content that doesn't come from Synetic and Submarine and whatever? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of that goes to Film Festival Alliance and really trying to, in the past 10 to 15 years, say, hey, let's be more ethical and treat people. And also, I think at a lot of regional fests, they start it in their hometown because they're the filmmaker. And so they care about the filmmaker, (laughs) if that makes sense. And so I think there's a lot of that sort of cultivation locally that makes you want to try stuff out and be more experimental. And also you don't have the same type of fiscal sponsorship you have to worry about at a larger fest where, you know, L'Oreal's not going to call me in Wichita and be upset that we showed an animal factory. Like, it's just not going to impact as much, but it will impact the audiences. That's a really random way to answer that, but if that works... So in switching from Oxford to Tallgrass, like, did your, like, approach to being an executive director change at all? Did you have to adjust to a different type of film festival? Or did you just sort of, like, take your indie spirit and, you know, transplant it over to Tallgrass? Well, I was stubborn before Tallgrass, but no, I mean, it is a different structure. One, I was in a small town in the South. Now I'm in the exact middle of the country in a, the largest city in Kansas, which is a very small city in most places. But it's number one, there's different sentimentality and thoughts of Midwesterners than Southerners. Somewhat. There's also similar. <laughs> so really, for me, the festival structures differently with how many staff they have, what they do. There's certain things that they do that I already knew about and liked. And then I was already doing that. Like their hospitality is always stellar. They take care of the filmmakers in every way they can. So there was stuff that I just said, oh, that sounds great. Let's keep doing it. And then there was stuff that was really part of the larger national conversation. You know, seasonal workers weren't paid very well. So I'm slowly increasing that. So trying to improve upon things that I think we're all learning at every festival right now. So so yes and no is my answer. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about you as a producer. How do you build your day? Like, how do you schedule out your day when you are overseeing a film festival? You're, you know, you have a family, you and this is not a uniquely female question. I'm just, you know, and it sounds like you really enjoy artist support when you produce. So I'm just trying to figure out how do you find the projects and then how do you carve out the time to support the projects? Pre-pandemic, I was a lot more organized. And, you know, like Monday from eight to four was this. And then, you know, it was ridiculous. Now I'm just sort of chaotic and things keep happening. I honestly haven't been looking for a project since the pandemic started. One, because I'm still trying to close out this documentary feature that just keeps getting shifted to different places. And two, you know, pandemic burnout and life is exhausting. My husband has asthma. I'm, you know, disabled. And so there's a lot of high risk factors. So I kind of just stopped looking for projects. But then everyone else started thinking of new ideas. And they're like, oh, Melanie's supportive. (laughs) So I've actually been approached a lot more than normal the past year. And I think the positive of that, because I've slowed down a bit, is that I have the time to read and think and say yes to only what I really think I could add value to before when I was new, it was like yes to everything because you want to learn and experience. When you come on, like, like you're saying, like you're selecting these projects and like deciding which one to, to come on to, like how does it work? Do you like join the team kind of, you know, as as one of like, you know, as an indie filmmaker? Or are you coming in as like, no, I, I have a rate and this is what I charge. This is a contract. Like, like how do you approach when you pick up on a project? Yeah, I'm not PGA. I'm very, very low budget. <laughs> <laughs> ND. I don't I don't come in with plans. It really depends per project. And you know, sometimes I, I said no to a project this year because they had these really great, grandiose ideas, and I am not the person to find them the, anything for that. So 
I just said no and said, here, you should talk to this person. I think they'd be a better fit. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very, there's no organization to that. It's very random. It's always been, I guess, my side gig compared to the festival since that does consume 89% of my life. An unformed question. Hopefully it will be formed for the time. Well, I it'll match talking. my unformed answers. That's so. <laughs> I mean, it's a conversation after all. <laughs> you know, what would be an ideal ecosystem for fostering creative voices? I mean, you're, you've been a part of these film festivals. You produce content. You've written about content as a journalist. So I'm just trying to figure out like all of us are kind of drowning, trying to break out, so to speak. And a lot of us aren't, don't really take a lot of time in fostering like what the actual vision is. So I'm just curious what, what you would see as an ideal atmosphere for creating art. I don't know if this is ideal. This is what I've been trying to do since I moved to Wichita because all of a sudden where I've been doing a lot of pre-production work in Mississippi, mostly locations, extra casting, that sort of stuff. I don't know anyone or what AV equipment we have here or anything. And so I, since I had the power of having tall grass behind me, started a film alliance. And I was like, I'll just bring them all in one place and then I can start learning. And what I learned very quickly is that what we're seeing in the regional scene specifically are the people who couldn't afford to move somewhere and afford film school, but they're trying and they're trying to figure it out is that they need someone to say, okay, here's the pieces that you're missing. Let's start educating you locally. So we're literally doing different classes every month with our locals. And this is not students. This is 18 up that didn't go to film school. So these are the adults at 40 trying to pick up a camera for the first time and really just cultivate this idea. And in doing so helps me because then I'm like, okay, this guy's a really good script writer and this one's a really good. And so just kind of pulling all these pieces together locally and asking them, what do you want? And just giving them that back along with stuff that I think they need that they're, they don't know yet. <laughs> so yeah. So just trying to cultivate people around you. What is it? Mark Duplass always says, like, pick up a camera and go make something with your friends. It's the same at the larger level, but then you have to start figuring out financing and marketing. You still are trying to make stuff with people you like. <laughs> so. so I want to ask a question about like vetting film festivals and like how filmmakers should be selecting which ones to apply to like in and like like is that important like or or i mean yes. it obviously is because <laughs> we can't apply to every film festival in the world with our movies right like oh my have gosh to be filmmakers really throw so much money away <laughs> like oh my gosh if you know like my entire heart is set on this festival don't submit to anything that accepts or is before that if you know you're not going to play it that's like step number one you throw away your money step number two is no nobody's impressed by your 200 laurels of awards mills thank you all thank I do you. as as somebody watching those films is go ooh red that, flag it makes it worse right yeah. it makes yeah it makes it worse. worse it makes yeah it says that you don't know how to research you don't know how to think about what matters for your film and cultivating your audience it says that you don't really know what you want you're just throwing it against the wall it says you're not professional to me if somebody is cultivating something and like Liz, can I say this? Like Liz had a film that we ended up not being able to play, but we were in her trajectory. We were in her plan and life changes. It happens. And she communicated with us instead of waiting till we announced. <laughs> but it's still like a big regret of my life. <laughs> but but it like, but you communicated and look, we're still friends and we're still talking. The ones who don't communicate and then you're like, oh, cool. Well, I just threw away your slot to somebody else. So, I mean, I've learned over the years to give filmmakers some time because there's a lot of things happening all at once. Then their notifications are being figured out. And then I always have like a, oh, that film was so close. If I didn't, if I had room, I'd keep it. 
And so I don't hold, I hold those back as long as I can for those chances that happen. But the thing is, there are really great like student film showcases. There are things that you can do to build you up well before you get to Sundance. So assuming, oh, I just picked up this camera and made a documentary. Obviously, Sundance will want it. Here's my hundred (laughs) dollars. No, you're just wasting everyone's time. Really learn, like you could actually just go volunteer at a film festival or screen for a film festival and watch what they pick and how they pick it. And it's such great research. That's how I learned. Can you talk a little bit about the complications of what you alluded to at the top of that answer? Like, I know, again, from just starting to do this work that there's this very shitty situation that regional film festivals are thrown into because filmmakers who are delusional want to wait until those career catapulting festivals get back to them before they respond to the film festivals that actually support them, the regional film festivals. Yeah. I didn't mean to like feed an answer. I just was curious what your what your thoughts were about being stuck in that like very frustrating situation. So uh, it happens. So like Craig Brewer and the Duplass brothers got discovered at Sundance. 10, 15 years into their careers. And so both of them continue to give buck. They're they're my good examples of like, Craig Brewer still tries to bring films to Memphis. That's where he's from. Oxford Film Festival was the first one to ever show one of his movies. He still brings projects there. That's the good side of it. The bad side is, oh, you're a stepping stone until I make it big and then I don't need you anymore. That happens way more than the positive side, unfortunately. And I get it because you hear these like, oh, this person was discovered at Berlin. So that's the only place I can play to make it like they did. And that's not the model. They just, unfortunately, we get this much room to write an article and it's my fault too as media. We rip out all the like long details getting you to that road. So, But also like the absurdity of festival premieres and protecting them. I mean, is or maybe I shouldn't call it absurdity. I think it's absurd, but I don't, you know, is is it something that complicates your selection process where people are playing that waiting game? Yeah. And again, no offense, Liz, but that's really the sales agents more than anyone. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I think, you know, like the team at Sundance doesn't care if it played in Podunk, Ohio. It's not changing their lives, but the distributors and sales agents, that's the, the game that everyone's trying to play too, rather than spirit of discovery and fresh ideas. So that's where we are now. I hope it collapses completely and we have to rebuild, honestly. So, so do you feel like it's it's less important where a premier, uh, film premieres and more important just like, you know, the audiences that it reaches? I mean, no. I mean, that's ideal. That's my utopia that it <laughs> would be. But I think anyone who's trying to guide you to distribution in the United States would say you need to be at this festival or this festival. There's two or three that could be the one that people will pick you up at. But I think there's a quite a choir of voices. I mean, I feel like I've been the one shouting this for a long time, but it feels like a lot of people are picking up that steam of like, oh, wait, I just saw this amazing film at... Cleveland, which is a great festival, but like it can world premiere there and still actually have legs. And I think what the positive of the pandemic was of very few is that people were able to log in and support festivals outside of the two or three they budget for because they're so expensive to travel to. And so people were like, oh, wait, there is good film everywhere. And it's starting to become that larger conversation. With regard to sustainable careers for indie filmmakers, do you see any working model? Like, I don't see any working model. Do you see one where filmmakers in Mississippi or in Kansas are able to make films, make money off their films that then fuel the next project? Uh, I'm not trying to just plug hammer and nail because I write for it. 
but I brought this up actually in a producing panel at Tallgrass because Noah Lang had this is not a war story here and he had written an article we interviewed Talia oh yeah yeah great yeah so the whole SVOD model is an interesting one I don't think it's the long-term solution so I don't know I I wish I knew I I don't have the answer I'm not the right person for that question I don't think (laughs) no (laughs) I don't (laughs) yeah I don't think there's one person in the world who has the answer to that question I think everyone's trying to at least think of it though I mean I see I read lots of interesting things but that's not my uh my area I'm just trying to help the fledgling startups. <laughs> so like as filmmakers come to you, do they, I'm sure they've asked you that question. How do I make money? How do I do this long term? Do you have an answer that you usually give them? It, uh, it changes. So when I started 20 years ago, I volunteered all the time because I had a real job and that was my side weekend gig. And that was great. But that took a long time to lead to any sort of economic payoff. And not everyone can afford that. And not everyone has that opportunity. Some people have four or five jobs, but they're also really creative. So here in Kansas, literally our first film alliance, that was question number one is how do we start making money? And it's like, well, are you are you paying attention to like what's filming in the area that you could drive to and you could work as local? Are you doing a PA job? Oh, oh no, I'm a DP. I'm not a PA. You know, it's like, okay, well, sometimes on the bigger sets, you have to kind of just start somewhere and get your foot in the door and then they think of you the next time. So there's a lot of that sort of like, oh no, I'm supposed to start at the top. That's the only option I have. And so just trying to remind people that sometimes you just have to work on a set and learn before you become, you know, a $3 billion budget director. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think also just like realizing that that $3 billion dollar, dollar budget director thing is only for a very small percentage of people. And that's okay. You know, like not everybody has to make movies with big budgets. Like you can make movies on, you know, micro budget for the rest of your life and, you know, tell fulfilling, interesting stories. And I think that's one of the things that like, you know, I'm seeing or we're seeing through the podcast, you know, some of the people who are continuing to make movies are making them at these like really low budget levels yeah. and not like doing five, $10 million movies, you know, cause yeah. like who can, who, who, where are those, where are those budgets coming from? You know, like very, very small places, very few places. Right. I think that's always been an issue, especially in indie film is like, who's going to just underwrite that sort of large chunk when they could probably have some return on like 500,000. Yeah. I think that's the penultimate question in our field. Well, as a producer, you know, do you do any fundraising? And like, if so, like, what are your sources for the, the fun, the funds? Like, do you have like certain investors you go to or certain in, like, like, I don't know, like companies or something or like, how does it work? Yeah, I have a handful. And then documentary has very different, like there's so many more great grant resources and humanities councils and everybody seems to want to fund that sort of story. And then really mostly I've worked in a lot of the horror field, which does have people that like it and it does have some return. And so I have a handful of sources that are like, if this isn't for you, who do you think? And then sometimes we work on no budget because I didn't do a great job. <laughs> so Yeah. And then I've crowdfunded three times successfully. One time I failed and I learned a lot from all th- four. Just, you know, to, to copy Liz and do follow up with the follow up. Looking back, like, can you see why that one crowdfunding campaign failed? Like, was there something that you did differently? Or was there something different about that project that ended with that result versus the successful result of the other three? Yeah, it's my difficult documentary that's still not out. The first crowdfunding, I actually had an amazing producer. He's He worked at a big studio and then retired to Mississippi and loved the idea, was kind of personally funding it, brought in a couple investors, but we needed some more funds. So we decided to do, I think it was Indiegogo. No offense to them. That's not why we failed. But we 
have a very difficult subject and I won't name him because he watches me on the internet constantly, but (laughs) we didn't realize because we thought the story was so clever and so interesting how many people he had pissed off. And in the South, once you burn a certain bridge, people will not support no matter who you are. And so I had sort of my usual people that would like chip in. There wasn't the crowd that we thought would really respond to this. And we even did like a public concert, had all these amazing music, like all this cool stuff. And the public had lost interest in the story already. And it was like a year and a half in. So it really, really didn't give us our finishing funds. And this person is an impersonator of a very famous musician. I won't say who, but it costs a lot of money for the rights of anything, even imitating him on camera. So it still sits there with studios looking at it going, Ooh, do we want to invest that much in clearing this? <laughs> so yeah, that's why it was really the subject and more than anything. All the others, you know, we kind of do the usual. My Kickstarter one, I did my first one, Where I Begin, which is a feature, was really successful because and this is so sad and I don't think they would do this today, but at the time, I guess 15 years ago, they're like, a film in Mississippi? Who's doing that? And so they like featured it on the front of Kickstarter. Like, look, people are making millifies other places. It was like, okay. I mean, we got eyeballs outside of eyeballs we could ever reach. So it was wonderful. <laughs> Arc, I'm ready to go to the next set of questions. Are you ready? I, I have one more question, which I just have to ask because, you know, being such a, you know, so rooted in film festivals, like when you get into a film festival as a filmmaker, there's all this advice to do all these different things. Like, you know, print out brochures, like do this, like, you know, reach out to these, you know, newspapers to like write about your film, blah, blah, blah. Like, what do you think is like the most valuable thing to do as a filmmaker? Like once you get into a film festival. Talk to the locals to shut up to your film and ask them for their feedback. I had one filmmaker out of... 45 features this year bring a survey with her to hand out to her audience and capture their emails one and she used to work at a film festival so she knows <laughs> it really i mean you you can be written up in the local paper and sure that drives sales for sure but if you're a jackass or don't show up to that festival you're just a film they watched and they can't even remember what year or what title it's like that thing but if you're the one that was there and you're like oh my gosh thank you for coming and talk to them really one-to-one go afterwards in the lobby show up at the party and talk to the people that are your audience if you saw them, you know, those people become beloved. And I know Milan was on your panel. He was just a juror at our festival, but he, you know, his whole thing at every festival is to really be present <laughs> and people remember him because we had all these amazing Liz Cardenas who won last night for seven days at Spirit Awards. She was there, but she's more like me. She's a little more, you know, a little introverted. She can be more extroverted, but Milan, Chakraborty is sort of everywhere there's a presence I mean, it's the jump he is remembered right? everywhere yeah like <laughs> it's, it's the clothing a little bit yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i've tried to tell this to filmmakers people remember personalities not necessarily your film title i've seen thousands of films i don't remember all the titles ever do you remember uh, chris gore's book the ultimate film festival survival guide okay so i remember reading that before my festival premiere and he was talking about i can never say his name todd solon stolen you know whatever like the most amazing filmmaker ever happiness and he was talking about miranda july he was talking about all these people who had like a distinct look and he was like that's what you have to do you have to get a crazy haircut or dye your hair and you have to do anything 
everything you can to stand out. There's no question. I just wanted to share that. No, it's right, though. I mean, unless you hit that superstar celebrity where everyone recognizes you. Like, yeah. I mean, Milan has a right. John Wildman out of Dallas has a right. He always wears a suit and tie. And I'm like, ugh, I wear a t-shirt and jeans like everyone else and nobody remembers who I am. <laughs> so. Well, on that note, what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Yeah, Where I Began was actually my first. It was a feature. And I, again, was running the film festival and a filmmaker we had there said, do you mind just reading my script for notes? Because I've been doing that forever for friends. I said, sure. And it was about a woman who was raped. The guy comes back to town and it felt very hollow and it felt very male perspective of clearly somebody who's never even been around a rape victim. So I said, well, I just have a few, you know, constructive criticisms. <laughs> and he said, he called me, actually, he didn't respond. He called me and was like, everything you said is exactly what I can't figure out. Would you please help me write it? And I was like, sure, yeah, you know. So I spent a day or two writing one scene, which is still my favorite scene in the movie. Not just because I wrote it, but it's still like, I don't know. It just resonates with me even today. The rest of the film, we had a very inexperienced crew because we had low budget. It's okay. It's fine. It's not the worst or best first film, I guess. But I learned more doing that feature than I would doing 20 shorts because anything that could go wrong did. We set off a fire suppression system in a restaurant and we didn't have insurance thinking we'd be clever and under the radar. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the director ended up being pre-Me Too, one of the early Me Too adopters of uh, the opposite side. <laughs> Very horrible person to work with. So there was a lot of really awful, awful things. And I was like, this is what filmmaking is. And then I had to be the one that everyone kept going to and solving it. And I don't know why I should have run very far. But instead I was like, I love this. I'm going to make all my sets way more safe and got really super into it. So I feel very complicated about my first film. (laughs) (laughs) What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Uh, And I, I honestly, I don't even know if I'm quoting somebody anymore or if I read it or or somebody said it to me like it's just been in my head for so long i don't even remember who to credit to so if you know tell me (laughs) it is that the more movies you work on the closer you'll get to the image in your head that you're trying to get out and i love that because we're all just learning so what's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received (laughs) (laughs) some some do Yeah, I don't know. I I wish I had one go to. I guess maybe I don't know. I I was a female in the South when at the time there were only two male filmmakers in my area, so I got a lot of. I built the right crew and cast that didn't treat me like, oh, you're a female filmmaker, you know. But definitely dealing with locations and other places, and really more as a festival director, they would thank the male near me for doing whatever I just did. And I don't know that's advice <laughs> so much. But I never had anyone say, you know what, you could stand up and say something. It was like, I'm trying to be polite. So I won't, I won't acknowledge that I'm actually the person. I wouldn't do that today. But yeah, I don't know. I never got that bad advice, but I kind of wish I had gotten that good advice. <laughs> do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Um, I just like interesting stories. I always have since I think I wrote a poem first when I was six. I just like telling stories. And so I like attaching myself to things that seem interesting to me. And I guess I'm already doing it. I don't have some... Well, I would like this documentary to go away forever, actually, once it finally finishes. That's my big dream as a filmmaker is to finally finish this one. <laughs> but no, I don't know. I, 
I wish we all could live forever and could just keep making interesting stories. But I, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes it's good. I think slowing down the past three years has been helpful to focus in on what I really want to do rather than just throwing my energy everywhere. If you could go back in time, what's the one piece of advice or what would you tell yourself, your your younger self? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I would have done exactly the same because it's all been sort of all learning and leading to the next thing. I don't know. I mean, I love that I moved to Mississippi instead of New York. I love that I left LA to become a filmmaker. I, I love my story. It's weird. <laughs> it's opposite of almost everyone else. So I don't know. Maybe pick up a camera in high school instead of waiting till your 20s. <laughs> that might have been nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then last question, is making movies hard? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, the podcast has the title right. <laughs> so yeah, of course it is. That's why I think, was it Chris's film, Film Fest Secrets? It says of all filmmakers, like seven out of 10 will never make a second film. There's like a huge number. Like they'll try it once. And they're like, eh, I'm good. <laughs> so that tells me just statistically the fact that you can even finish one, let alone a second or a third or keep going. Yeah, it's hard. How can people support you, support Tallgrass and sell your wares, send them to where you want <laughs> them to go? I will soon be announcing a new documentary project with David Parks. He is the son of Gordon Parks. He's actually coming back to Kansas to film just like his dad did. So I would love personally for people to check that out when it happens. And then Tallgrass, we have what we call sofa grass. So you don't have to be in Wichita. You can watch films on your sofa and support us, which is always a great <laughs> thing. Or submit your film because we will do our best to be you know, equitable and treat you well. We also do ticket splits at the door at our festival. So that's nice to actually make money as you're on the festival circuit. Liz, what do you remember from our conversation with Melanie? You know, not much, to be super <laughs> frank. It was several, several was weeks months ago. months and months ago. <laughs> but I do adore Mel. Like, she's one of these people that I've been following for a while. I've been like... I just was so excited the minute she joined the Zoom and I looked at her and I was like, oh, we finally get to see each other and talk to each other face to face. So I just, the only thing I have to say is that there's a lot of love that I have for her. But other than that, I, I just remember it being a pleasant conversation. Yeah, it was very pleasant. I found it really interesting to hear like her journey into the film festival world because it, it was, I guess, not really what I expected. It wasn't like, yes, I want to, you know, be a film festival director. It's like more like, oh, I love this festival. Let me be a part of it. Let me be a volunteer. Oh, that's going to lead to being this. That's going to lead to being that. And then eventually you're the executive director of a film it's festival. Like for accidental. Like, like there was, yeah. like, oh, I just fell into it. Yeah. And for like 10 years or something. And then, and then eventually she made the move to Tallgrass, which I thought was really interesting to hear about like why she decided to do that, why she decided to jump to, do, to a different film festival and like what she's hoping to do with Tallgrass that she, you know, didn't do at Oxford. So I think that that whole part of the conversation I really enjoyed. And then we talked a little bit about her filmmaking, but it was just like a really interesting conversation because it's like a person who like whole life is in film, right? Like everything they do, like their day job is completely narrative or documentary film based. And then their their interest is, is filmmaking. So it's like, you know, I just imagine myself if I didn't have a corporate video job and I worked on movies all day, like that's what my life would be like, which would be fun. But, you know, so fun. something I wanted to clarify, because I was thinking about the interview and I realized there's kind of like an inside baseballness to Mel and my relationship that I thought maybe needs clarity. Speed of Life got into Oxford Film Festival and it was either Colin. I just had Colin or I was about to have Colin. And I made a bunch of really stupid decisions about film festivals at the beginning of Speed of Life. Like, I'll just admit it. 
and I said no to Oxford premiering the film because I wanted to wait for South by and it was a really big mistake and it started my relationship off with Mel on like not the best note I would say (laughs) and I've been trying to like make it up to her ever since and just apologize profusely but I just want to acknowledge that like the ridiculous politics of premieres and calendaring out these things and protecting your premiere and waiting and seeing when you don't really have a realistic chance to get into certain film festivals has ramifications for your future and that there are these wonderful regional mid-tier film festivals that have an, that are actually curating have a lot of love for indie film and we should be prioritizing them instead of the the lottery ticket of a chance we have for top tier unless that lottery ticket unless you have like 45 tickets in that raffle versus one right so <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so first off, I, I just play devil's advocate here. You and Mel are like friendly. So obviously yeah. it wasn't that bad, right? No, like, you know, it wasn't bad. the biggest disaster in the world. Although it would have been probably fun if you'd played that film festival instead of skipping on it, you know? But like, also, what do you mean 45 tickets in the raffle? Like if you have 45 connections to the film festival, is that what you yeah, mean? Or like, what? If you like <laughs> have XYZ repping your film and you right. get into a mid-tier film festival, but you're waiting to hear from a top tier Like, I get playing that game of leveraging and waiting and see, or even forgoing the mid-tier to to have a chance at the top tier. But I still think that you, and I've mentioned this before, like, if you're going to get into TIFF, you're going to find out that you get into TIFF, like, months before everyone else, you know? Or you're Mm going to have representation or a teammate who's giving you a heads up through the festival that you have a good chance of Mm -hmm. it. It's never going to be you get notified on the notification date from a top tier film festival. So because a lot of filmmakers don't know that, they prioritize the wrong film festivals in the ways they calendar submissions. And so that's what Mm. I think is the big problem here. And I want to admit that I do festival consulting now, which is so funny, but I've made all these horrible mistakes in the past. And that's why I'm consulting because I've suffered for the wrong decisions. Do you think that it's a a wise move for certain films to like go after the big tier for one year? So like you just go for Sundance, for Tribeca, for South by, for TIFF, for whatever, all the big ones. And then if you don't get in to any of those hot ones on your list, then you like wait and then, okay, now I'm going to submit to these, these regional ones and then start my, my film, film, film festival run later in the season. And then I'll be able to hit everybody, you know, in a full calendar year. I think people submit too early. They shouldn't submit rough cuts. We've talked about this before. Wait till your film's done. And the goal would be to calendar it out for you to start submitting in the summer so mm. that you're t- you are submitting effectively to top tier film festivals first if you're submitting this summer. Because you're submitting to TIFF, you're submitting to Sundance, you're starting with those fall festivals, right? Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point in March, unfortunately, is when that decision of South by versus some really wonderful regional festivals come to a head. So mm. I think it's actually really good to just calendar out so you're not doing all top tier one year and all medium mid tier mm-hmm. the next year. Because mm-hmm. so as a distribution consultant, every single conversation I have with a client is them saying, I'm exhausted. I've been doing this too long. Just put it out into the world. And you're exhausted <laughs> because you spent two years on the festival circuit, I think, you know, and mm-hmm. seven years fundraising and 25 mm-hmm. years making the movie. So if you can can calendar out so you save a little time for yourself and exhaustion i would do that nice love it yeah but in other updates in the world we have a news segment to today and for for life this week's article is about how netflix and hulu are being 
sued by towns in California and how it's not working out for the towns. It comes to us via The Hollywood Reporter. I have to say that I had to read this article like seven times because it did not go in my brain anytime I read it. It was very difficult <laughs> to read for me. But I'd love to hear what you think, Ulrich. What What are you, what was your response? Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I feel like like they're trying to, to get a piece of this pie. Like it's, it's just like another example of like everyone trying to like attack the streaming model yeah. and like try to, you know, somehow like make it work kind of like the old days, you know, in some way where it's like, oh, you have to pay this, you have to pay that. Everyone gets a piece of the pie or whatever. But like, that's the whole point <laughs> of these, these streamers is that they've, they've changed the game. Like they figured, they, they kind of figured out a way, a loophole around all these archaic systems of like having to pay people all these things. I feel like these, these people are just like, no, you have to pay me. You have to do this. And it's like, no, no, they don't. They don't have to do shit. Well, and a lot of it was based <laughs> off of the fact that cable companies, from what I understand, please correct me, had to like lay wire or actual physical cable into the infrastructure or the ground of the town. And so that essentially creates like, you know, construction or blight or whatever it is that the city is concerned with. Right. So that's what's so interesting is that like, I mean, I can see <laughs> it's just so funny to me that it's like, I, I agree there's bias against the streamers, but it's also like they do get this like wonderful free pass because of technology. But they're, but they're streaming there. And that's not going through the cable to get to people's houses. Right, that's what I'm saying. It's, they get a free pass. Because it's going through the, it's going through the, the, the air. Internet. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Unless yeah. there's like a, you know, whatever Google, what do they call it? Like fiber optic system. And every single citizen of that town is only using Netflix with the internet. You know, like there's some data that you can collect that yeah. insinuates that. No, I, I, I agree. This, they shouldn't be, these businesses shouldn't be treated the same way old school cable systems were treated. But that's also interesting to me that there was, I didn't know there was a tax towards cable companies with oh, yeah, to no. these kind of things. That is interesting. Well, it's, it's funny. It's too bad for the cable companies, you know, until they start taxing the internet. I don't really know. <laughs> you know, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> and also, I think what's a little bit odd about this is you look at things like PBS or like, you know, like Sesame Street, for example, when Sesame Street mm -hmm. wasn't on HBO, but it was on PBS entire. I mean, I know it splits now, but when it was entirely on PBS, like that was kind of a that was a public good. That was a public television. That was a public television, you know, station channel that was providing education for children. So mm -hmm. that also bothers me too, in that maybe there's complications to this that we are not even aware of. But that that's something that that culture was providing. The town was being taxed by by the city. Anyway, uh, there's. I I don't fully understand it, but it but I think the nature of television isn't that it's an indulgence. It can be educational and it can be artistic and it can bring culture to a community. And so that's the way we could be looking at it rather than it's like an indulgence tax or a sin tax or something like right. that, which it seems to be traded uh, treated here. Right, totally. The thing that I care more about for Netflix and Hulu and the streamers is just making sure that people are getting residuals for yeah. their, their work. And like that's a huge issue that I don't think has been solved yet either because they won't release their data to anyone. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, the whole, like I was just, 
just negotiating for use of a clip uh, from a, a well-known TV show for this movie I'm working on. And the, the price was outrageous that they wanted for per minute of the show is <laughs> like thousands and thousands of dollars. And you're like, and then I was like, well, is there any discount? Like any way you can lower it? And they're like, well, people live off the, the these residuals. Like this is like how like people are depending on the money that comes in from this clip, these clips being reused to like to pay for their that was the line I was given. Right. I don't know if that's complete bullshit or not. Like, I mean, especially this show, like, I think most of the people involved are probably, probably dead. <laughs> but, but, but it, maybe it's going to their family's estate, you know, who knows? Like, maybe that's what they're talking about. But it's just so fascinating, like, the way that all, that all works and how, like, you know, all these streaming, you know, entities are kind of like changing the game in a way and like making it so people can't, you know, get those sweet, sweet, sweet residual checks in the same way that they, they have, they are now or they have for you, have been for years. But what I really want to talk about is this question that we got from a brand new listener. So we got an email from Jason Spignoli, which is an amazing name, and I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Spignoli, who is a filmmaker, film teacher out of Queens in New York. Jason writes, Hey Ulrich, quick question. Small world, but I heard about film shortage on your website and applied with my short. They accepted it. And funnily enough, I just listened to the episode of Lisa Donato where you all try to convince her to release her short online. Wondering when the right time to premiere would be, and should it be limited to a 48-hour window or indefinitely be available on their site? I ask because we're still waiting to hear back from festivals who are having our cast, crew, family, and friends screening on Saturday. And I remember one of you saying this could be the perfect time to have all those connected those connected post it on social as soon as it gets dropped. I promise I will not continue emailing you daily. <laughs> it just so happened that this coincidentally happened as a result of what you all shared. So again, thanks. Liz, this is like a huge can of worms email, which I'm like, I read this and I'm like, there are so many things wrong with what you're saying to me right now. So... What do you think, Liz? Like, what, what, what would you say to this question? Yeah, I'm like trying to, cause I'm also parsing it in a different way because I'm, I just had the mix for my short film, my horror comedy, Witchy. And then also in February, I released a short film called Lena. So Lena was on the festival circuit for a year and it took a year to do post production and production. So it was like two years after the first day we shot, we released it. And I think that your audience, you're going to get the most amount of attention, of course, from an online, re- sorry, you're going to get the most amount of views from an online release. That being said, if you're waiting to hear back from festivals, like you still need, you've made that decision to like invest that money into launching it in those windows. So I wouldn't release it during your friends and family screening because then you essentially drop out of contingent, you drop out of consideration at those film festivals. And these are all things we talk about a lot. So I give my answer with the acknowledgement that film festivals will delay gratification for you. But you already chose that strategy and you already invested that money. So my encouragement is to wait and then collect email addresses, promote the short, promote everywhere it's going. And then when you release it online, you have a group of people from the cast and crew screening and their network to promote it to. Yeah. Like collect their emails, like get all their emails together. And then when the movie drops, then like email them all even before and like let them know that it's happening. But like the thing that was so bizarre about this is like the fact that she submitted to film shortage while you're still waiting to hear back from film festivals without a release date plan. Like film shortage is a place where you release your film out into the world 
and it's like one of the ways that you can bolster the release. But it's not something that you do while you're still in film festivals, usually, or if you certainly if you haven't heard back from film festivals. Because, but but I mean, on the other hand, I have heard of people who have released their films online and do the film festival circuit at the same time. I just don't know if that, how impactful that is. It depends on which festivals you apply to. We have no idea I don't know. where Jason is submitting right now. Because, like, I mean, you know, I feel like a lot of festivals don't care if it's online or not. But, like, whether that really makes a difference, I'm not sure how big of a difference that makes for, like, a lot of the, the mid to low range film festivals. But there are, like, a handful of high-end film festivals where you'll, you won't be able to get into, right, if, you, if your right. film's online. So it sort of just kind of depends on your goals. But like, you know, I feel like if you're, if you got into film shortage, then you seemingly would be on the path to release it in a widely. But like, that's not traditionally what you do when you're waiting to get back from film festivals. Usually you get, like Liz said, like you do the film festival run. And then at the end of the film festival run, you release it. And and then this is what I did with my first short film where I had like a, a little bit of success releasing it online. It's like I did the year film festival thing. I collected emails and made contacts at all the film festivals that I played at. And so then when the movie was ready to premiere the week before, I emailed every film festival, all the 20 film festivals that we played at. And I was like, hey, we're dropping next week. Can you retweet or write an article or post upon it, post on on your the the website or whatever? And like, I think everybody did. Like, everybody did something. They either like you know posted about it, retweeted it, liked it, shared it, something. And I think that was really helpful. Like when we released the movie to to kind of get it out there. Um, and you also have to like you know find blogs and different websites where like that the who will want to premiere it and show it. Like not just film shortage. Like that's one piece of it. You know. But, like, you also want to, like, make sure other people are writing about it, that, like, bloggers, reviewers, people who are, who are interested in the content of the short are all, like, knowing about it so they can cover it and write about it. Because that's, that's how we got our, you know, our big push. Like, I think in the first, I don't know, five days or so, we probably got, like... I don't know, maybe 5,000, 3,000 views, something like that, which at the time I was like, what, you know, that's good, but it's okay, whatever. And like now realizing it's like, that was really, really great. And, and then the Sunday after we released, I think we released it on a Monday and the Sunday after it got posted on this website and I had like sent them all this information about like the movie, like how we crowdfunded it, like how me and my wife are huge Star Trek fans, like how there's a Star Trek connection in the movie and it's based off of this episode. And you know, there's pictures of of me and my wife in our Star Trek uniforms, like at this convention, like I, like this whole package I, I gave these people. And then they pretty much just use that as a guide to write their article. And they put it out there and they had add their own commentary and some of their own thoughts. And then that got in like one night, we got like 20, like 15,000 downloads. And then the next day it was like 5,000 more. And then we jumped, we were like at 25,000, like, f- like a week after the release or something. And it was all because of all that time and that effort and everything putting into the release and the support from the 20 plus film festivals and the fact that we had all the laurels and maybe one, we didn't really win many awards. I think we had like one award or something. But anyways, it was like all that time that work was like what resulted in that, that release. But if you try to jump it and you don't do it first, like it's going to, I don't know, like maybe, maybe 10 people will watch it. Who knows? You know, <laughs> like, well, It's always going back to your goals, right? So it's like I made Witchy, the horror comedy short, specifically to submit to horror film festivals. Like that was the entire goal because if you are trying to kind of change your image, I'm trying to change my image from a micro budget storyteller to a commodity. Like I really want people to see me as a product, <laughs> invest in me, the product Liz. Then I said, 
I'm going to do genre because I think that's a way to kind of stand out and be bold and tell stories in a really interesting way. And I truly believe that programmers and screeners, even if they're interns, even if they're unpaid volunteers, they've, they're committing to a life in this field and they're going to rise up as well. So think about the people you're investing in when you submit to film festivals. You're, you're investing in relationships, long-term relationships with people. Whereas when you put it on YouTube, you may get more views, but you have no way of capturing that information. So just like you're saying, Ulrich, it's like you get every duck in a row, you gather information, you figure out your promotional plan, you figure out, does this fall in line with your goals for that specific film? And then you launch. But but don't, I think all of us get really impatient as filmmakers because we're not, we're exhausted. And just keep the, the your goals in your, what is it? Not your rear view mirror, but your, keep it in your line of sight at all times. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and that's a good thing about the goals. Like, what are your goals with the movie? Like, I think that, that really makes a difference, you know? And then also, like, what film festivals did you apply to? And like, what kind of movie is it? Like, did you apply to film festivals that make sense for the movie? Like mid-tier to lower tier or, or genre-specific film festivals? Or did you apply to like Sundance and South by Southwest and, you know, all the big ones, which like are like Hail Marys, even for people who have been doing this for a long time? You know, it's just like, you know, it just kind of depends what what your goals are. But I'm really curious to, to hear your reaction to this, Jason. Like, what do you think? Like, are we nuts? Like, what are your plans? Like, what are you trying to do? Like, do you want to be one of those people who like has the movie out online and is also doing the film festival circuit? Does not matter to you? You know, I mean, I think that's like, there is some sort of value to it because you can promote your movie in a stronger way if it's online while you're doing the festival circuit. It's just whether or not you, you get into film festivals, you know, with a movie that's on uh, that already wildly available. Who knows? Maybe you will, maybe you won't. And a short, a quick plug before we, we roll out of here. Eric Toms runs a night of shorts night. Eric Toms is our producer. And you should send your short to Eric Toms. And we're just going to give Eric Toms his email address. <laughs> do you think he'll kill us? No, no, no. We should not do that without asking. All right, Eric Toms, if you are listening, which you should be because you're the producer of this podcast, you let <laughs> us know if we could share your email address on the next episode so that we could promote Night of Shorts Night for filmmakers like Jason to submit their film to get a little bit of love. But yeah. all of you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. And if you like this show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out our loves, the International Screenwriters Association. The ISA is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. They publish your logline to a network of industry professionals. They offer courses, contests. They have a top 25 writers list. Go to networkisa.org to sign up for free. Thank you to Mel, to Melanie Addington for coming on our show. Thanks to our amazing producer, Eric Toms, who is going to tell us more about Night of Shorts Night on the next episode. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Rymoot, for doing all the editing. He is fantastic. Fantastico. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. This week, we welcome filmmaker and film festival director, Melanie. Mel- Mel- <laughs> wow, that was just really flew out of my mouth.